Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. Welcome in to this episode of Karen Commons. You've got two hosts with you today. I'm Nate Wombold, Vice President for Alumni and Community Affairs here at Karen. And I'm here with my colleague, Ben Best, who is Director of Development and Foundations and also a youth pastor at a local congregation. Well, there's a question that has been on my mind and that I've seen raised in a variety of conversations around in our culture, and it has to do with things and how we think of them. In particular, I'm thinking here of the conversations that are happening around so-called analog culture. You've even seen some things around the university, for instance, our church leaders conference that touched on this in some ways. Analog culture, its decline and implications, and what does this all mean? And the question of how this extends to material things, material possessions, and how Christians ought to think seems to me to be all wrapped up into this as well. Now, maybe hearing that means you're about to shut off this episode of the podcast at this point because that's of no interest to you. But I hope you don't do that because by the time we're done here, I hope that if you are the kind of person who finds yourself noticing that the way we view things, possessions, collections, even things like hobbies and material matter, is radically changing, and if you're at all concerned or interested or excited about these questions and the philosophical and theological and worldview implications, then I think you'll enjoy this conversation. So for this talk, I wanted to grab my colleague and friend Ben Best because he, across the hall, as we are from each other here at Cairn, uh, and I have had so many conversations over lunch and elsewhere about a lot of these things. And as we may hear over the course of the podcast, it's good to know you're not alone in thinking of these things. And though Ben and I are separated by a few years in age, I'd say we cover a pretty wide span of... uh, decades, kind of both old souls, maybe in a way. So I think we reach high, but um, uh, we're covering Gen X. We're covering some, I guess, touching on the millennial generation. And I think we'll be able to hit this from a lot of different angles. So Ben, it's really nice to sit with you down here in the studio and have a conversation of the kind that we have all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Nate, for inviting me to the opportunity. It's, it's great. I'm looking forward to, to digging into the discussion. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Well, I was thinking maybe we could start with the subject of, of hobbies to kind of make this a little bit more accessible. Certainly. You're a youth pastor. I've been out of the, uh, the game of high school education for a while now, um, but I was a high school English teacher for 15 years, and of course, having teenagers of my own, I rub shoulders with that generation, but you are really rubbing shoulders with that generation. And um, I wondered, it seems to me like there hobbies used to be such a thing. Like my mind immediately goes to stamp collecting and, uh, you know, younger boys and girls, uh, especially, you know, having these interests, these particular things that they're curating. And I want to come back to that word later because I love the word curating and its etymology and what it means. But I find myself thinking, you know, is that still happening? I, I don't feel like I see that as much. Have Have hobbies taken a different form? Are young people doing that? But they're just... They're just collecting and engaged in these kind of uh, particular pursuits, but in a different way. But w- what are you observing on that? You know, like anything, I think it's, it's dependent on the kid, uh, for sure. But in a, in a general broad uh, brush statement, 
uh, hobbies, collecting, it is has definitely morphed and changed. I, I have some students, and I know other other colleagues and youth pastors I talk with, uh, we, we kind of talk around the trends of these sorts of things. I have a few students that would still collect Legos and still have, you know, like an interesting collection. One of my students, who is amazing and hilarious, um, has a collection of like the the very cool Lego uh, Star Wars helmets. They're unique. Like they're like no, size. they're like nearly full size okay. helmets that you build um, out of Lego, and and he's got like six of the ten that there are, mm. and that's one of the you know he's got. A Lego collection. A lot of our other students, they they curate and collect things maybe more related to their, their particular interest of like somebody likes cars, somebody likes video games. There's it, the, the collections have certainly morphed. I don't see a lot of students with Lego collections anymore or you know, not a not a rock collection, but um, yeah, the rock. That's, nobody's, that's a classic. Nobody's one. nobody's collecting <laughs> like stamps piece anymore. Of paper right? That you would glue the it rock to and identify. You know? But nobody's. I mean, I don't even see um, really big collections of a lot of material things. The shift that I've noticed is the things that students are collecting. This will sound maybe a bit tongue in cheek. Are uh, Facebook friends or social media friends and um, and information gathering. So they are making collections of sort, but they're almost almost digital collections these days. So I still have students that read a lot of books, but they're all digital. They don't have a book collection. They don't have a library. But even even the idea of collecting things or it's moved digitally in many cases. Um, that's the biggest trend that I've noticed. So when you say collecting Facebook friends, uh, and you're saying that, Sanchi, is that what it, what it sounds to me is sort of like it's not really a collection, but but For is sure. it? But yeah. I, guess, yeah. I guess in a way you could say a digital collection of books. Like if you're doing online books, and like for instance you're on Goodreads and mm-hmm. you've got your collection of books there. I, I think in a sense that could be seen as collecting titles, yeah. but mm-hmm. in a different way. But so do you think they think of that in the way that the stamp collector, the rock collector, the bicycle collector, you yeah, know, yeah. whatever of, yeah. of your. I think they they definitely think of it differently. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think, again, in my experience, it probably has more to do with kids are still figuring out the things they like much, much later in life. And I think uh, the more we see the, the sort of digital consumption thing growing, the less I see students you know, at a young age like we were interested in something very specific. Um, oftentimes they, they sort of have their childhood things that they're interested in. And then very suddenly that goes away to a pantheon of things that they're interested in. And until late high school, college, even sometimes, uh, you know, post college, they're really redefining and kind of figuring out these are the things that I really do like and going back to those collections or starting brand new ones. But it really is almost a good seven to ten years, nearly a decade sometimes later than you or I would have gone through. So it's like a lot of things in youth today. There's a lot of delayed yeah, everything. very much. What, what, what was starting much earlier uh, when we were younger is now waiting. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that, mm-hmm. one of which I think is you have this constant consumption Right, this sort of digital distraction, it, but but I think that leads to it. It makes kids knowledgeable about like a, a 
a ton of things, but not an expert in anything. And, and they, in a lot of times, just consume enough to keep up, but not enough to give them excellence in a craft or like to define things. And I think partly, and we, we could have a completely separate conversation about this. Um, and the last thing I want to sound is like a kids these days, kids these days yeah. sort of conversation. Um, because it certainly it's even happened that, in my yeah. generation. Certainly. Um, I think you're experiencing or you're seeing a lot of, uh, people that are no longer, very excellent at their craft as opposed to 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever. There's a lot of people that are excellent on the forefront cutting edge of something. You know, technology is always going to be a, a, a barrier for that. But I'm surprised that only recently I'm, I'm seeing kids and teenagers and young adults become like incredibly proficient in, in musical instruments again or... Um, in, in, in some ways they're just not allowing themselves to be bored enough to, to dedicate that time to a collection, a skill or, or something that really takes an awful lot of time to invest in. Oh, well, I want to insert here too, because hearing you talk about your experience in youth ministry, a uh, small plug for the Karen Commons episode that Ben hosted recently, and you'll be hearing more from him in the future, but with... Matt Mikulak here from Cairn University from the Youth and Family Ministries Program. If you haven't listened to that, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to their conversation, especially if you're hearing this and you're from a eh, kind of a middle-agey Gen X era. I think it will be particularly interesting to you as they touched on some of the changes in culture and in youth culture for today, but they're all kind of relevant to these conversations we're having in terms of how even uh, young people may think about something like hobbies, but, you know, that was super helpful for uh, uh, things, all things youth ministry. Well, let's talk about one of your interests yeah. as we talk about um, hobbies and material things. Since I've known you, I've known you've uh, been into watches, whatever you want to call that, a watch guy. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's... Uh, heretical to say watch if that's not the right term but could be pejorative but might yeah. not be it's fine <laughs> yeah depends on the depends on the company right right yeah uh but how how did you get interested in watches and, and in what way are you interested in watches you know i think it's interesting a lot of people that are into watches or or see people that are into watches think that it's this materialistic thing so, you know, if you go after a certain brand, it's because you're looking for a status symbol or something like that. And, and it's very much not that because the, the collection of watches that I have has stemmed the, you know, $25 swatch that I found at a yard sale to, uh, you know, an expensive, uh, you know, luxury brand watch that, you know, has a connotation for like a status symbol, but it isn't in the right company. So, um, company of people. Yeah, in the, yeah. In the right company of people. I got into watches effectively, for one, because my dad and my grandpa always had watches, and I just sort of had that, like, well, when you, you know, grow up, you get a watch, just so you know what time it is. You know, my, um, most of my family was, was always in the military, so there was a, a idea of punctuality, and, you know, if you were less than 10 minutes early, you were late. Um, so uh, time has been sort of a, a longstanding uh, reality for me. Uh, and then as I began to get older, I, I valued 
sort of a, a tangible way to think about life and the time that I have. Um, there is there is this like silly as a as a watch guy and as a believer that like I, I think sometimes I I talk myself into like what I theologically think yes. about time yes. because I like watches and vice versa. At least you're honest about that. Yeah, that's that's fair. But there yeah. is a like I I also because I like to work on watches and mess with watches and build the the tiny little intricate things that you know there's hundreds of parts inside of little watches and you have to have this tiny little. Uh, you know, monocle eyeglass to get way in there and, and really figure out what you're doing. There is this reality to well-engineered, well-designed things that I think I'm just naturally attracted to. Uh, it could be, um, you know, a well-engineered watch. It could be a well-engineered tool. It could be a well-engineered car, any of those things. I just appreciate well-engineered things. Then on the, the theological side of life, um, I, I do like looking down at my wrist and having a, an evidence of the passing of time in my life, as well as the idea of constantly thinking about how I'm using my time. It is, it is a reminder all the time of how I'm using my time in a way that a phone is not. So... Yeah, those are some of the yeah. waxing poetic reasons, yeah, but yeah. there's so many more, and that's that's well, that a long be, conversation. That's a whole other podcast. Maybe yeah. we should do just the watch edition of yeah, right. your comments. But I think, um, you know, back to, uh, you know, I don't want to keep making this about generational shift and all that, but I think that's a factor. But I remember the first time when I was in the classroom, a student asked me, Mr. Womble, what, what time is it? And I, I, I pointed to the clock on the wall, and I said, well, there's a clock right up there. Why don't you just, yeah. I mean, I'm happy to tell you, you yeah. know, but she said, I can't read that. Yep. And speaking of analog and digital, taking on, you know, th those terms have taken on different meaning, but it is because she could not tell time on an analog face. Yep. And, you know, for a lot of us, we remember the teacher getting out the little clock and moving the hands around and you got to spin the little plastic hands around and that thing yep. that they bought at the teacher store. I and, I have one and I've taught my oh, four-year-old yeah. son, now five. Uh, he knows how to tell time right. on an analog face. Yes. Specifically because I think that's a skill that kids should have that many don't. And, and why should they today, yeah. right? Like nearly all the world... Yes. You can pull out your phone, look at the time. That's different. Watch guys don't think of time in that way. That's not what it's about. You can look at it and say, oh, what's the time? And it's, it's different than pulling out your phone. And yeah, there's just a different kind of way that you engage with something analog, like a watch, like a clock on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was a, there was a really popular book um, when I was entering college um, that I remember a lot of people who were, well you know, trying to be perceived as intellectuals or kind of, <laughs> you know, having those conversations, but uh, the Tao of Pooh. Yeah. And the point was made in there, and I, I want to give credit to it, that, you know, you, you can't save time, you can only spend it. Yeah. And so, for instance, the hourglass is a really helpful picture that when all the sand moves through, it's gone. Yeah. And I used to, when I was a teacher, and then kind of trying to create this resurgence of interest in these things and penmanship and getting students to write in cursive yep. for the different reasons that that's valuable, I used to use that example and say, you know, every second, I've even mentioned this in chapels that I've spoken at here at Cairn, you know, every second that we spend is a second that we, we won't get back. Yeah. And so I think this is an example of how the material possession of a watch and the quality of that. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole idea of, of 
time. I mean, you know, I was reading about, I think it was one of the early Rolexes that went to an expedition, mm-hmm. and the time that it kept was exact up until the, the date of its present existence because yeah. of, the, of the quality of the watch. And you can correct me if, if that's an uh, impossible claim or something that I'm not, not nearly. No, I mean it'll be it'll yet. be plus or minus here or there. But okay. it, I mean, yeah. the, when they first came out with uh, wrist watches, specifically moving from pocket watches into uh, wrist watches, uh, one of the hardest things was getting it to stay accurate to a up to a point in time, mm-hmm. and how to measure that and have any kind of reliable understanding of time was the big trick. In, in wristwatch movement, because they had done it with clocks, they had done it to grandfather clocks, and then they shrunk it down to, you know, pocket watches, and then going from there, uh, yeah, that, that was the trick. And, and it, there is inherently something there that's valuable, right? Yeah, yeah. So all of that, but the more precise the watch, yeah. and in certain senses, the more expensive the watch in mm-hmm. terms of the movement, not necessarily the materials of diamonds or something yeah, on the yeah. outside. But it's a more accurate reflection of time. Yep. And the more attentive we are to time and the the truly fleeting nature of it, that mm-hmm. we are spending it, we're spending it right now. Anybody who's listening to this, you know, you're spending it. You've just, I'm sorry, you've, you've <laughs> just used 14 minutes. I just hit the chronograph, Ben. I think you'd approve. Well done. As soon as we started, it's, it's not going to be quite as accurate. But um, so you're 14 minutes in here. You've just used 14 minutes of your life listening to us. So hopefully we're spending your time wisely. But... What a, what a great reminder and what an important thing and, and a great thing for parents to teach their kids. Now, I don't want to make the podcast about, you know, analog clocks, but um, no, I feel like this is where that connection is not just you making something up. But as Christians, the notion of using our time well is yeah. absolutely a biblical concept. No question. And that's that's in some in many ways one of the reasons that I think I've over time gravitated to... Uh, watches specifically there's something different than when you look down and you see the second hand ticking away or sliding away it does something different than just looking at your phone or looking at a digital display with some seconds counting down something that kind of again it's that hourglass kind of feel but there's i think a biblical implication too right like i think of watches in the same way that i think of time I remember I was, my son was probably a year and a half or so, maybe two, and we had talked about what we were going to do for uh, nursery and toddler and, and, you know, children's church and that kind of stuff. And as parents, we decided we were going to keep our kids in church with us as long as that was okay with the church and do what we could. Effectively, because uh, as I started thinking about time and as a pastor, I thought, okay, so I've got roughly 18 years of time with my son and roundabout 52 weeks a year. So that's 950 to 1,000 Sundays that I have to worship with my family and prove to Graham that serving Christ is worth it. That there's a... And, and much of that was the decision was based on time. It was how much time do I have to invest in my son and show the worth, the all-surpassing worth of Christ. But it's related to this idea of fleeting time. So there's, yeah, there's, there's so many ways we could go. There's a, there's a brand that uh, I love in watches called Nomos. It's a German watch company. I, I'm sure that I'm probably the only guy that's ever thought this, but in... German, a nomos is law, 
the, the actual word would be translated law. Well, for a believer, there's a fun difference between the idea of law, gospel, time, the passage of time, the changing of the law to the, the change of grace. I'm probably the only guy that thinks about that theologically and wears a brand like that because I like that connection. But it's a way that I look at the watch and get value and pleasure and joy out of this connection to an object and this sort of, I won't say metaphysical, maybe trans, transcendental connection to heaven, the, the looking forward to things. The, uh, there's a spiritual component to yeah, it. Yeah. I just want to read this quote from, I know you're very familiar with, I've seen it on yourself, A Man and His Watch. Great so, book. On the Breitling Chronomatic GMT, a section of the description says this uh, owner, I'm someone who thinks stuff to a certain degree is not important. I have two boys, ages 10 and 13, and I'm trying to teach them that. Like the Buddhist tradition of creating sand mandalas, you spend all this time and emotional energy to make these very beautiful sand drawings, but you know they're only temporary and will be gone soon. I think there's a real beauty to that concept, and I think of my possessions in that way. It's also important to cherish the things you have, and this might seem weird to say, to have a relationship with them. You have to honor each object, and at the same time, be ready to let it go. Ultimately, in the case of my father, it was his act of giving that was meaningful to me, more so than the watch itself. And of course, his father gave him the watch. What strikes me as interesting about this is, I don't know where uh, this watch owner is coming from theologically, but engaging in this particular material aspect, aspect of the material world yeah. is jogging the mind to begin thinking about the kinds of spiritual questions that people need to be thinking about and considering. Yeah. And even though, you know, the example that he uses from, uh, you know, from Buddhist thinking, um, obviously as Christians, we're always laying everything next to the scripture and the scripture is standing in, in judgment of all these things. Yeah. But People are asking these questions and looking for meaning and looking for significance, yeah. and they're finding some of it, some aspects of that. Maybe it's not the complete picture or understanding, yeah. um, but yet again, I think that's an example of how these material things as part of creation can be and are often used to assist human beings in thinking about the things that they need to be. And we don't know where this will always lead. Will, will these things always contribute to people coming coming to faith or growing in their faith? Yeah. Uh, not always. Sometimes they will. But there there is still value in them for that purpose. Oh, no question. And I think it's interesting he pointed out that this tangible relationship with an object and kind of even... even uh, I'm going to assume, not not from a believer's perspective, the odd nature of having a relationship with an object. And yet I think... Most people, if they really scanned their life, could probably think about, I mean, certainly, especially their phone. It's probably the most potent relationship we have with an object. That's yet another podcast. Yeah, to come, totally right? different podcast. We, get podcast. Keith, we need to get Keith in on that yeah, one. Yeah, no <laughs> question. With the phone. Uh, plug for a book. There's a book yeah. called 10 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. It's phenomenally good. But the, the idea of this relationship with an object even he realizes that that's a strange thing to say and think about, but I think it gets at the tone of why we, 
as human beings connect with objects, connect with, there's memories tied to them. There's, there's, you know, some people collect art, some people collect clothing, some people collect bottles of wine, some people collect musical instruments, some people collect books. There's, there's any number of reason for collection. And it's not necessarily this materialistic, I got to hoard them all thing. You know, the idea of, of personality and relationship always strikes me because we're both car guys. You're a car guy. I think we can get to that in a moment. Yeah. Over the history of ownership I've had with cars, I think it's really easy to say most cars, or the best cars maybe, have their own personality. And and there's this, again, like this is a man-made, engineered feat, and yet somehow we developed this very unique relationship with it. So tell me, tell me about this idea of, I mean, I'm into watches, you're certainly into cars, um, but I think in many ways, for the record also, nearly all watch guys are car guys, and nearly all car guys are in some way watch guys. Yes, yes, so we have lots fair, of, yeah. uh, of overlap there. Yeah. Um, but where did your interest in cars come from, and, and kind of how does it relate to what we're talking about? Yeah, well, I think it's funny because uh, for so many people with watches, cars, these kinds of things, it was a relationship with uh, father or mother who passed these things down and that sort of thing. And uh, I've got great parents, uh, but my my dad would be the first to say he's not a car guy at all. So, but my I guess kind of my first memory was we had this really uh, kind of beat up, nasty Plymouth Volari station wagon, and so in those days. As if you're a little bit older listening, you recall um, the station wagon, you rode in the back. I mean, oh, somebody, yeah. you know, yep. and I was the youngest of three, so you got tossed in the, in the trunk. Or not, sorry, not in the trunk, in the, <laughs> the back of the station wagon. Facing so, rear or facing forward? Well, this had neither. Okay. This, I, I, this wasn't even a seat. So it was nice. like literally, you yep. know, I could get, you know, and, and of course now that would be uh, unthinkable it's, and understandable. It's, it's amazing I mean, we've made it this far. Exactly. And here I am uh, <laughs> at, the, at this age. Um, but I remember kind of laying there and 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 in trips in and out of uh, Philadelphia to see my grandmother actually passing this like under these street lights and seeing the reflection hit the side uh, window of the car and you know mm-hmm. you kind of see that in films sometimes they yep. capture this kind of mesmerizing repetition so yep. that's kind of my first memory but there's just something about the motion and the idea of everything transportation. You know, I've never really been into planes, but I think I get the whole romance of that. Yeah, for and, sure. And even, you know, trains, may, you know, maybe a little bit more interest in some trips that I've taken that way. But so I think that was the first kind of car memory, but really just always kind of curious about different makes and models. And then uh, in high school, I had a friend and some who are listening to this will know who he is, but um, but but I won't mention him. But he had a particular car. Um, it was a Fiat X19, the Targa removable hardtop roof. And just car. seeing the lines of that car for the first time, I was I was totally hooked. And so I started reading all the magazines. And I remember sitting in the library um, at the at the Christian school that I went to. And I did. I was reading. I didn't recognize these words. You know, uh, cylinders, torque, mm-hmm. compression, all this conversation about handling and tire size. And so, just over time, you know, I, I didn't need a class in it. I didn't need uh, to, you know, uh, sort of pay someone. I just dove into it because I was passionate. Which I found over the years. I mean, educationally, that's one of the greatest things that gets students. If you can find. Yeah. 
what is the thing that they're passionate about, they teach themselves oftentimes. And Mm -hmm. you're there more as a shepherd and a guide. And that's kind of what happened with me. So then I just, I started being a really annoying teenager, I think, saying every friend I had, I said, can I drive your car? Can I drive your car? And they were fine with it. But there were some, you know, shady times with that where that didn't always go well in terms of those cars being, you know, well cared for. And that sort of thing. But so that that just kind of grew. And I've always been interested in smaller, lightweight cars. I've become a huge, as we've discussed, you know, we're both big proponents of driving a manual transmission. And, and again, if I can do a little bit more sort of car geek stuff, I think not being super mechanically inclined myself. I mean, I try had to get into that a little bit and, you know, and do some basic tune up stuff and uh, I think the most complicated thing I ever did was change a clutch slave cylinder on, hey. on my Miata, which was for me a huge, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's a big deal. But, but I think it is the it's a combination of all those things. Um, but when when a car is is set up for a person to enjoy driving mm-hmm. it, I think that that's it's almost telegraphed throughout the entire uh, vehicle, and it's it's got a purpose. And, and I love things to be used for their purpose because Absolutely. I think on this discussion, it, it, that whole idea of, of we have, there's a need or there's a desire or there's a thing that will bring people joy and satisfaction or even yep. just transportation. And let's do it as well as we possibly can. So yeah. getting from point A to point B, and it's not about as it is today, sorry, but the, the technological aspects. You yeah. know, it seems like most new cars, the question is, well, what kind of technology is in there? How you know, many I'm, screens? What kind of technology? Yeah, how many what, screens? What, can what, what connectivity? Yeah. What can it do? That kind of thing. But it, it is, if it is about the driver interface with the car. And so so if you were to ask, as I imagine you might, you know, of, of all the cars that I've owned, which haven't been a ton because I keep them for a long time. You know, oh, I'll get there in one second. Oh, I, okay, I have yeah. a question before that. <laughs> oh, okay. So yeah. I, I think it's interesting that that, I think what you just described is there's a difference between a car that provides transportation and a car that provides pleasure or joy in the purpose it was built for. Yes. So you could have, you know, a cheap car that's A to B transportation. Now there may be some kind of we all have like that memory of like being 16 or so and your your first time unsupervised in a car, regardless of the value or regardless of like, there is a freedom and a joy that comes with like, I have the ability to drive from here to there. Yes. Then there's the other side of the coin, which is, you know, cars that are crazy amounts of money soaked in luxury, but maybe not great cars to drive, just great cars to almost be a passenger in. Yes. And then there are these cars in between value not notwithstanding it's just it has more to do with either the the nature of the car the feel of the car maybe performance or more just is it a joy to drive so that question leads me to maybe of the cars you've owned the car you've enjoyed or connected with the most Mm -hmm. and is that the same car that was that provided the most joy to drive oh interesting well i probably would say it would have to be the first Miata that I ever owned. And that, because I, I had that as my daily driver for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And part of that was, I think, for reliable transportation, yeah. that was the closest that I could get to sort of my first love, if you will, yeah. was that moment of seeing the lines on that uh the Fiat X19 Baritone mm-hmm. was the designer, I think. Yeah. And, and the thing was, too, it was a good deal. 
Yep. It was affordable. And, and that's the other thing is that cars, just like watches, have become, yep. people think of them as status. And you got yep. guys trying to get pictures taken of them by Lambos mm -hmm. to put it on Instagram or whatever. Right. So it's, and so Those are the people, people that are collecting social media yeah, followers. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. They're not <laughs> necessarily kind of collecting collection. things. They're collecting exactly. likes. Yes, exactly. I don't want to live that life. Yes, exactly. So, and you know, and, and debt, people have gone into debt so badly yeah. over cars, you know, and, and I know I've, I've changed my thinking a lot about uh, a lot of those things. But so the Miata was, it was the right car, it was the right time, and I never forget when I got into it, and I pulled onto the turnpike to go home and show my wife, and I put, because I had a cassette deck, I put the tape in, <laughs> which was from the, the very thing, one of the things I was listening to a lot in high school, and just hit the gas and it was just an incredible feeling and so i had that car as my daily driver for 10 years and i think the best part was you know people were always amused because i'm really tall and it's a small car but when i was a teacher it was i, I taught at a vocational school for a couple of years and then in a in, a, in a, a suburban public high school but it was such a great way of connecting with kids yep. because yep. they'd see me driving into school ask me about it what kind of performance upgrades did you you know yeah. you're gonna you, or, you know are you gonna do, put an intake on it you're gonna do the exhaust you're gonna do the suspension and then i got into just briefly not not heavily but doing a little autocross racing yeah and that car i think checked both of those boxes for me so if if you're thinking of that it was almost in that kind of venn diagram mm -hmm. sweet spot um and it was you know, the, the other thing about the Miata is when they made it, I remember reading um, the word in another German word. So ironically, the Japanese car company makes a Miata is a German word that means high reward. Yep. And they also said their goal was to create the sensation of horse and rider in the vehicle. And I think if you think that and you drive a Miata and on some other Mazdas too. Yep. You can kind of almost experience that now. I'm not. I'm not a horse guy, so you know. I you know. I don't know much about the equestrian right. experience, but I can imagine. I mean, I have ridden horses, yeah, and I can imagine that. And I think that that um, there's a tactile same. sensation that goes along with it. And it's interesting yes. that yeah. you know the. I think it's regardless of of car or or uh, performance. You hit on something that I think gets at the the relationship we have with an object. And especially the relationship we have with like things like transportation, it was the a a car that was the right price. So it was it was within the realm of affordability for you. That that has a factor in relationship. It had a purpose. There's a there's a purpose built cause to that car that that you could very easily exploit its purposes. It was also reliable. I think that's an interesting yes. one that yes. like sometimes that's the difference between transportation and joyful transportation. Right. 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 Like if you know anything about cars, the Miata was designed for Japanese reliability, but the joy of the old British and Italian roadsters that were known for a lack of reliability. Right. I have a Fiat 124 Spider that I've been working on for a long time that one of my first projects was to make reliable because it's kind of pointless to have a car if you can't drive it when you want to drive it right so there's a there's even this idea of like these experiences build a relationship with an object and it, again there's there's a whole nother conversation there but there there has to be some kind of in my mind like some kind of a theological implication on these material things mm. 
right? Yeah. Well, what do you got? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Ben, we've covered a lot of ground here. And, and Indeed. We could talk about this for hours and spin off. I didn't even get to read all my other quotes from the watch book that, you know, and I first saw that on your shelf and then I, I found it a secondhand shop, which secondhand books is a whole other conversation. We Indeed. Have, it's, it's a ripe with opportunity for yes. collection. Yes, for sure. But what would you say for you? Um, and, you know, we may come back to this in the future, but what, what are the most significant theological implications or worldview implications that you think people should draw from this? And, and maybe even are there any books that, stand out to you as addressing this in some way? You know, we have conversations regularly. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Puritan theology. Uh, I think they provide a, maybe an especially reasoned perspective in in the modern age. Uh, you know, lots of people say they're, they're doctors of the soul. I would tend to agree with that on the whole because I think they have a capacity to understand the theological implications of things, but the practicalities of, of the heart and living in the here and now, uh, and and the marriage of those two realities, you know, it's it's interesting. You have you have verses like uh, in Matthew six nineteen and twenty that's always quoted by every conservative friend I have um, that that reminds us not to lay up treasures in heaven and on earth where moth and rust steal and destroy, uh, but to lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Uh, where neither moth or rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And oftentimes that gets removed from not only its immediate context in the Sermon on the Mount, but also from other teaching on Scripture that wealth in and of itself is not the problem, but greed and the the preponderance towards uh, possession and accumulating things um, and and really that which removes or or detracts our heart from focusing on God. I think one of the guys I love, uh, I just, I'm always a fan of old dead guys. Yeah. Um, Richard Sibbs notes, uh, he, he is quoted for saying, where the world hath got possession in the heart, where, where things are the focus of the heart, it makes us false to God and false to man. It makes us unfaithful in our callings and false to religion itself. And I remember reading that in college early on and thinking he's kind of hitting on the the broad teaching of Scripture that things are not inherently bad. In fact, things, all things that are given, are given by a God, God's good and gracious hand that desires to give good gifts to his children. Um, and yet that can't be divorced from the other teachings of Scripture that pursuing materialism and consumerism is the other side of that spectrum. The things that, that lead to idolatry and pull our hearts away from God are different. So I think there has to be this sort of balance between developing good relationships with objects and things that God gives for their enjoyment, and yet not allowing those things to or even the joy of those things and the pursuit of those things to become this all-encompassing, all-passionate thing that clouds your pursuit of Christ. My experience as a pastor has told me that it's, it's difficult to find people that see that balance well. Um, our culture pushes people to consumerism. Christianity tries to pull people away from consumerism. 
And yet on both sides, I think there's an opportunity to see the good that God has designed in even things like cars and watches, right? These, these man-made objects that in some way give evidence of the glory of their creator in the fact that they're even existing and designed. Um, that, that's a whole other theological conversation. So yeah, on one hand, I think it's wise to sort of curb this self-indulgence idea that's so rampant in our culture. There's certainly a long list of cautions to, to be careful with in scripture. That's a, that's a long list, you know, the love of money, greed and, and lust, and these things that cloud and pervade our, our understanding of who God is and the holiness he calls us to. There's certainly the opposite side. Moderation doesn't mean you can't have something nice uh, or enjoy the thing that you have, but the Bible calls us clearly to stewardship in which God is viewed as the ultimate owner of all these things. And I think many passages in the scripture teach that money is to be used for social and societal good. There's, there's a way to view these things and these objects and these things as things that definitely bring us joy, but then have the capacity to bring others joy. I always get a kick out of people that want to drive their really fast, really expensive cars. There's, there's guys that want to show them off for the status symbol. And then there's guys that, I know many of them, that want to show them off because they're beautiful works of art that deserve to be in the public square. They deserve to be seen because they're beautiful things that have been made. And to own a Ferrari because it's a Ferrari is very different than to want to drive your Ferrari to a car meet, not to show off, but to say, like, look at how beautiful this thing is, Mm -hmm. not look at how wealthy I am. We all know people that have, regardless of what their wealth status is, they could easily want to show off wealth, or they could want to uh, give the public, whether it's watches, whether it's art, whether it's cars, it needs in some way an audience in order to be appreciated, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so yeah, there's, there's this certain difference between materialism and hobbies. I think hobbies, when given their proper place, have a way of bringing joy and satisfaction that few other pursuits do. And I think some way it gives a taste of what's to come when even our most prized possessions, my watches, your car, books, these things that we collect, one day they're all going to be thrown at the feet of Jesus because we will be fully satisfied in him and him alone. And those, those things that we're collecting, it, it's sort of like that taste of what's to come. So I'm glad you brought that up then, because just this week I uh, finished reading C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. Great book. It's probably my favorite Lewis book. It is, really. Mm -hmm. We should talk about that sometime. We should. It's very interesting. And uh, he he mentions hobbies at the end. I marked this page, and and, and I wanted to read this, and we can kind of wrap our time up with this. But in a way, you've already kind of raised this incredible point that Lewis makes. He writes, even in your hobbies, as he's he's talking in the final chapter on heaven, so spoiler alert if you haven't read the book. I'm about a page from the end here. But even in your hobbies, has there not always been some secret attraction which the others are curiously ignorant of? Something not to be identified with, but always on the verge of breaking through. The smell of cut wood in the workshop or the clap-clap of water against the boat's side. 
Are not all lifelong friendships born at the moment when at last you meet another human being who has some inkling, but faint and uncertain even in the best, of that something which you were born desiring, and which, beneath the flux of other desires and in all the momentary silences between the louder passions, night and day, year by year, from childhood to old age, you are looking for, watching for, listening for. You have never had it. All the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of it, tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. (laughs) But if it should really become manifest, if there ever came an echo that did not die away but swelled into the sound itself, you would know it. Beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. We cannot tell each other about it. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable one, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. While we are, this is. If we lose this, we lose all. Typical Lewis fashion there at the end and that this alone could be yet another conversation but yeah way to way to get lewis to in two paragraphs summarize our entire conversation for the last hour exactly yeah, we yeah. should put it at the beginning does. fast forward to about 44 minutes in yeah listen to the lewis quote and then <laughs> you can you can tune out but um but yeah i i appreciate all the points you made and i think this is a great capstone that yeah. um you know it, it would be so much easier if the pursuit of these things and the appreciation of hobbies, collections, interests, and things were all bad mm-hmm. or were all good. Yeah. But neither is true. And no. so like so many things, we live in the middle and by God's grace, pull out from these things what, what they're there for. Yeah. We all have an intrinsic theology of stuff, right? It's just trying to get that theology to match up to scripture's evident truth and living that theology of stuff in light of how God calls us to live our lives. It's a good place to end. Well, thank you for letting us into your day here. And if you're driving, I hope you're enjoying it while you're listening. And I hope this has been refreshing to you. And maybe in some small way, as Lewis wrote, you can find lifelong friendships born with those who share your interests and especially as Christians can see through the things we have been given and see them not as an end in themselves, but refractors of the true light, which bring absolute joy. Be sure to subscribe to the Karen Commons podcast so you don't miss future conversations like this one and those that Ben will be hosting, as well as Keith Plummer. So until next time, thanks for listening.